1: Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 23 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The bi-weekly podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Wondering if a valiant poster on the wall would be good for my image, I'm Adam. And used to being the
0: dark horse of my neighborhood, who's often defiant, I'm Michael.
1: And crossing the border to join us tonight is a man from the North who may be experiencing a case of vertigo as we take a high-level view of comics from days gone by. He's not from Malibu, but rather the appropriately deceased Moratory Mondays podcast and upcoming ElfQuest podcast, QuesterDays. Welcome, Chris Bailey, a.k.a. Charlton Hero.
2: I have come to defend Rob Liefeld and chew bubblegum, but I'm all out of Rob Liefeld.
0: (laughs) Now, Adam, are we really bi-weekly now between the mini-episodes, the Wizard Files? I feel like we're like a six-times-a-month show. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we don't want to set the expectations too high. And after uh, eating a comic book, I might have to take a sabbatical shortly. Oh, Bag and all that,
0: my dad. Bag and all. That was rough. I was sitting there, and I, I was cringing the whole time. I mean, anybody who watches it could see like, Oh, God, I was so uncomfortable and nervous. I'm like, He's going to do it. He's going all the <laughs> way. Way. I was like, oh boy, I was very Originally, I
1: was just oh, going to film it myself and I was like, Michael needs to be here for this. It's all about yeah. the reaction.
2: Oh, it totally How was. does it that feel so to have crazy. Rob inside you?
1: Whoa. I know, it's it's a dangerous and volatile feeling, I will tell you.
0: The nightmare relived over and over and over again. So, I'm like on Facebook and I see it pop up and I see my face and I see, I was like, oh god, I just kept reliving that moment. I'm like, he's, I'm like, there's a st- Staple in there, dude. There's a staple in there. What are you doing?
2: <laughs> I was at work and saw a notification come by, and I was on—I was in the middle of an important conference call, and I'm like, I need to switch this off and see this book eating. <laughs>
1: it's gonna start a whole trend i'll tell you so yes if you have not visited the wizards the podcast guide to comics youtube channel get yourself subscribed over there we will hope to bring you more content how we will top that i do not know
0: i don't know we'll find a way
1: (laughs) but chris we are here to get to know you you're a man of many stories and so we feel like we want to know your origin story
2: all right. Well, my origin actually begins. So I moved to a from a small town to a small town, and uh, my mom actually got a job at a convenience store. So funny things happened at a convenience store. So back in the day, they used to throw away all the magazines. All the magazines went to a garbage dumpster all the time. However, the owner let my mom bring home some comic books. Of course, you had to take the covers off because boy, you you know, you you couldn't bring home a comic with a cover. So I would get stacks and stacks of comics with no covers. So this was back in the day when uh you had such classics as Erecks on a Thunder and you had Amethyst and you had New Teen Titans. So these are the books, but I would get multiple copies. So I would end up with like five coverless Ereck Son of Thunders. And this is how, how I began my love of comics, actually. So eventually I started getting into these things, and, you know, after I realized that I read the same Iraq five times in a row. But that was okay because uh, my mother let me purchase comics. And the first one that I ever purchased was New Teen Titans number 1. Oh, wow. That's and beautiful. that, uh, let me tell you, that set my passion and love for this entire comics game on the right foot. I mean, you got George Perez artwork, and I, w- I was spoiled out of the gate. So, from there, I went on to uh, collect comics right up through university and uh, had a little bit of a drop-off. So, after the the bubble burst and uh, I got married and money ran short, so did my uh, comics buying habits. But, guess what? Guess how I stayed in the game, gentlemen? Let's hear it. So, I, I worked overnight in a large retailer, which I will not discuss. And I happen to be a manager of this large retailer. So, during the overnights, we had a bookshelf in our... Stationery department, and guess what was on the bookshelf? copies of wizard magazine Uh yes sir But they were bagged at the time so i had to get very creative in how i read my wizard magazine on my lunch break so i couldn't afford it so i brought it in and i used my working utility knife and i hustled that baby out of the bag and i would keep up on comics during my downtime reading wizard magazine so there you go wow yeah from there on so you know finally after i i got my adult footing i was able to repurchase comics again and back in Game podcasting and blogging and all kinds of fun stuff. So that's my origin
1: story. It's comics, comics,
0: comics. Actually, my first experience with Wizard Magazine was at a Kmart. Funny enough, I saw it like in the in the magazine section, and I was like, Wow, that's kind of cool. I I never even heard of it, and I was I think we were doing like back to school shopping when I was a kid. Was like, oh, what's this? And I and I ended up getting the first issue because of that. I don't even know what issue it was, nor do I remember you know any details about it. But it's just like that was the thing when you would go to you know a retail store or a big box store like that, you would find those kind of things in the magazine section, and and that is like almost like a bygone era. Like that oh, went, yeah. then the CDs went, then the DVDs went, and so on and so forth. <laughs> (laughs)
1: we're only getting older gentlemen but uh chris you mentioned the stationary department there and you know when you get that stationary sometimes you got to write yourself a letter so michael why don't we open up willie lumpkins (laughs) mailbag
0: This one I had to print it out because it is so long. I was like, I just I need to physically hold it in my hand to read it because it was just.
1: <laughs> well, Michael, you you are always commenting on the length of these. You are certainly a product of the Twitter age, where you're just like limit the characters, please. No. <laughs> I don't want to hear people go on and on.
0: I'm so lazy. I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. I just I need to g- give it to me as quick and as short as humanly possible. So this first one we have is from Eric Larson of oakland california if you recall in issue 21 spider-man writer dave Michelini wrote into claim sole credit for creating venom and provided some fascinating details as to the character's origins in this issue's magic words column savage dragon creator and former spider-man artist eric larson writes in to challenge Michelini's claim and adam can you read what eric larson had to say
1: yes absolutely here we go dear wizard brother that Michelini clown's got a lot of gall he swipes the existing alien spider-man outfit with its existing powers that already hated spider-man and puts it on a poorly motivated and poorly conceived character tog mcfarland takes dave's description of a big guy in the existing spider-man outfit and adds his own touch of a grinning face with accompanying fangs slobber long tongue and claws and then and Dave claims sole creation of the Venom character. Yeah, right. I suppose he'd claim to have invented Spider-Man too if he could get away with it. I'll give Dave credit for co-creating eddie brock if you'd like mcfarlane was still responsible for designing the character visually but that's not much to crow about one-dimensional hate-driven revenge-hungry characters are a dime a dozen eddie was the main reason i disliked the venom characters so much eddie's motivation for hating spider-man as you may recall is that he was a reporter who believed a guy who was claiming to be the sin eater eddie got canned from the paper for writing his series of fact lacking articles his rationale for hating spidey was that if spidey didn't catch sin eater he'd never get caught, and he could continue writing his bogus articles for the rest of his life, is completely idiotic. Sin Eater would probably have eventually been caught by somebody else. The man who confessed to Eddie didn't have his name printed in the paper, so it wasn't like the world would know that he was talking to the wrong guy. What would Eddie have poor Spidey do? Allow innocents to be slaughtered just for the sake of maintaining his journalistic integrity? Dumb. The whole Venom-Spider-Man conflict could be resolved in two panels of halfway thought-out dialogue if only a writer capable of such a feat could be given the assignment.
0: So wizard responds to this and says just for the record we gave dave Michelini the chance to respond to this letter due to its volatile nature and he declined let me just set the record straight concerning how the venom character evolved the venom costume was introduced in the pages of secret wars number eight in december of 1984 written by jim shooter Later, Venom was semi-introduced in the pages of Web of Spider-Man number 18, September of 86, written by Michelini. That early version of Venom would have bore little resemblance to the current incarnation of the character. If for no other reason than that Venom was female, the stage was then set for Venom's origin in The Death of Gene DeWolf, storyline arc in Spectacular Spider-Man 107 to 110 October of 85 to January of 86 written by Peter David which never really involved Eddie Brock until his origin was told in the storyline spanning Amazing Spider-Man number 298 to 300 in March to May of 88 written by Michelini and considered by the majority to be the first appearance of and origin of Eddie Brock Venom McFarlane has never claimed to be responsible for anything but the visual design of the venom character. And there is no way you can argue McFarlane's contributions to the character's success. Though I am a fan of Michelini's writing, I know that one of the strongest pulls to the venom character is the way he looks. As far as giving proper credit of creation to the to the writer or the artist, well, that's a fight that's been going on for quite some time and one which I don't have a neat and clean answer to this to me feels very much like the x-men versus iron man conflict that has been waging in wizard as well (laughs) this is just a new troll back and forth that we're dealing with here
1: well but luckily we have someone here a neutral party who is going to answer it for us chris who created venom (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, this is where we get into the fact where we got to ask ourselves what comes first, the Jack or the Stan. That's what I always say. <laughs> so when you're when you're arguing, you know, who creates, is it the writer or is it the guy who masters the visuals? So if you're asking me who I thought created Venom, it's always going to be the artist in my opinion. So think about it. You you have Stanley and he's, you know, he's banging out characters on his notepad. He's jotting down names and he comes up with Spider-Man. Right. So you're like, wait a second. He just goes to Jack Kirby and he goes, hey, Jack, you know, uh, can you go ahead and make me a Spider-Man? <laughs> and that's about all the information he gives the guy so all of a sudden you get like steve ditko who's drawn spider-man you know what i mean so he goes steve i need you to do me a spider-man and he comes back with the complete cast he comes back with you know a complete drawing and workup of spider-man and stan goes ahead and takes credit for it even though poor steve ditko and you know jack kirby had a rough sketch of him swinging and you know all the visuals are there but yet somebody else like the writer is going to take credit so in my opinion if you're thinking about who the actual actual creator will say it always lies with the visual for me interesting i
0: I have to agree with you and i'll tell you and i can i can back that up so we can look at the Bob Kane, Bill Finger kind of a scenario. If you've Ooh. ever seen the original sketches that Bob Kane did of the Batman, it's a blonde-haired <laughs> guy with a domino mask and a red costume with bat-like wings. It wasn't until Bill Finger actually designed the cowl and the, the pointed ears and you know the gray and black motif that ended up becoming the iconic look of the Batman.
1: But, Michael, who takes credit for the purple gloves?
0: <laughs> uh, that's I, I'm giving that to Bill Finger, I think. <laughs>
1: But now, here's where I fall on this. I feel like it's a situation where, you know, if I was going to, you know, be the judge in this case, it's like, okay, Dave Michelini created the name Venom, he created the alter ego, he created the concept. Larson's point that the costume already existed is valid, but he created a character, yes, and motivations, however dumb they would be, you know, but... You have to say, who made the character popular? Who made the character that was created matter? Well, that goes to McFarlane. So I kind of give them two different awards. You know, the character would not have been popular without McFarlane, which Michelini did admit in his letter. So to me, I guess I just feel like they're they're arguing over something that doesn't really matter, and even McFarlane has not thrown his hat in the ring to be the creator of Venom. Eric Larson's just sticking up for his pal when he didn't ask for any help.
0: So, Adam, what you're saying is, everybody gets a trophy. That's right! Oh,
2: <laughs> this no, is the 21st no. century, after all. <laughs> okay, finish a debate for me. So, McFarlane versus Larsen's Venom.
1: Who's better? I would say, just from a purely visual, interesting, you know, like, am I going to look at this and remember it? I would say Larson. Agree. Uh, because McFarlane, I love the streamlined look, but it's a little bit subdued. Yeah. What about the tongue? (laughs) <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, you know, Larson gave him that extended jaw and just like the slimiest tongue you've seen. So if you
2: ever
0: see a statue or any kind of you know rendering of Venom, it's that kind of
2: a look, hundred percent.
1: Yeah, it's just funny Larson's not like I defined Venom. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, good gravy! What's what's funny about the entire McFarlane era? If you if you break it down, so he's given a lot of credit for boosting the sales of of Spider Man obviously you know clearly he was the hot artist who brought that book to popularity but think about what eric larzen did after the fact so he got this weird hybrid style that is almost like steve ditko meets modern art you know what i mean and uh, he took that rogues gallery man and i guarantee you some of that some of that rogues gallery brought that ditko flavor to uh to the 1990s man it was it was some really really good work and i think that larzen gets the short end of the stick when it comes to the todd father getting all the credit for you know boosting. Spider-Man. Larson pulled his weight more than we know, man. For sure, yeah.
0: Now uh, speaking of pulling your weight, so we have another magic words and the big cheese, Garib Sheamus himself is called to action by a letter from reader Tom Butram. <laughs> Come on, Michael. Dude, I I can't make this up.
1: It's Butram, like Pat Butram.
0: It's, he said, it, it, it's, Ram. it's it's literally it's literally written Thom T H O M but Ram. So I'm, that's what I'm calling him. Thom but Ram about the recent offer for Wizards Half Comics and Garb responds like
2: only Seamus can. Chris, you want to read uh, Thom's letter? <laughs> Dear Wizard, what's this Max Half gimmick crap? I mean, I gotta pay a $1.95 plus 29 cents for a stamp to get it, and I quote, a free max one-half? I would just as soon buy it in a comic shop, save the stamp, not wait six to eight weeks and have to worry about it getting lost in the mail or damaged, and after all, it's free, right? Says Fom buttram Ram. <laughs> so, he's also from North Dakota, I have to point that out. Um, that explains
1: it. <laughs> it does
0: it, it actually makes a lot of
1: sense and let, let me read briefly pat mccallum's response he says what kind of name is butt ram anyway <laughs> <laughs> he gets
0: it. now for those of you guys who don't know back in the day in the 90s and and beyond when you did some sort of mail order thing it was always whenever you saw an ad you'd see like you know it's only this Plus shipping and handling. Please allow six to eight weeks to deliver. And that was kind of like the standard thing. And if you got it faster than six to eight weeks, you were like, wow, this thing came <laughs> so fast. Now you're like, oh, I got to go on Amazon. I need a piece of toilet paper. I'm going to order today. I'll be here tomorrow. Great. Fantastic. The way the world was then is very different than it is now. Like when I tell my children, when they have to see commercials, why am I seeing this commercial? Why does it go? Where's my show? I'm like, <laughs> kid you don't know you don't know
1: anyway the big cheese himself has come up to bat to answer this one
0: i will read garab's response when i decided to publish max half i felt the response would be huge and it has been i also decided to make darn sure my readers would get their copies in perfect condition as fast as possible so i contracted with a major firm to input the addresses and also contracted to have each one inserted into a specially designed pro guard holder with a certificate of authenticity and have all the that inserted into a rigid jiffy mailer what is a
2: rigid jiffy mailer okay oh anyway boy. Uh, i will tell you what a rigid jiffy mailer is after complete the letter okay when you see the book you'll know why we went to these
0: lengths the alternative to the shipping cost was to spend less money processing orders and protecting the book additionally we dream up these freebies which take tremendous amounts of our time to pull off because we constantly hear from our readers who tell us they're dealers never seem to have enough copies of wizard the magazine sells out immediately and these promotions encourage the dealers to order more copies and they sometimes order a lot of extra copies they don't even sell at least not with certificates like max number half still inside Garib Sheamus.
1: now a rigid jiffy mailer remember we're a a pg-13 podcast chris oh yes (laughs)
2: so have you guys ever subscribed to a marvel comic only dc on my end okay so here's the deal so it's 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 the late 80s so wolverine is coming out with a solo title plus marvel comics presents is also bursting onto the scene so it's the first time i've actually got a little bit of money i'm working at a dry cleaners i decide i'm gonna subscribe to the comic so i clip out my little coupon i send it away and i wait forever for these things to show up like the These were on the shelf and off the shelf in my hometown long before they ever arrived in my mailbox. But when they showed up, gentlemen, oh boy, when they showed up, they showed up in the Jiffy Mailer. And these things are nothing more than a piece of, uh, picture a magazine bag that you would get at a convenience store. They're a little bit sturdier than that. But my comics, by the time they got to me, to say they were not in mint condition doesn't do it justice. These things look like they were used for swatting flies. They were folded over ten times. They were destroyed. Like when you rank something from mint right down to good, this would not qualify as piss poor. It was terrible. But the, the Jiffy Mailer was nothing more than a magazine bag that would basically secure your comic and they would work as long as somebody didn't have the IQ of a, uh, a snail and uh, you know, fold your comic in three quarters by the time it gets to you. So ideally they should work. But you know, if you're, if your postal service is, uh, is disastrous, like mine was here in Canada, you know, six months later, when you finally got the issue, it was very good gentlemen.
1: I will tell you, I, I have my copy of the max half right in front of me here in the ProGuard. Yes, ProGuard protective case here. Now, you might wonder why was he going to such lengths to promote ProGuard? Well, that was <laughs> Wizard's brand of protective bags and boards that they wanted to offer you. So, yes, this is a little bit of extra promotion there. He's not just giving you a freebie just for fun. No, no, no. He wants you to get a sample of what you could be storing your comics in. Very wise there, Mr. Sheamus. <laughs> well done.
0: So, Adam, what do you have for us in this month's Table of Contents?
1: Oh boy. So July of 1993, that is our cover date listed here, issue number 23. And this is an Image and Valiant mashup cover by Bart Sears to promote the Valiant Image Deathmate crossover series. Ah, can you believe it? They're nipping at the heels of Marvel. They're destroying DC. Yes, they are everything everybody wants to be and they are combining forces this is surely the end of the big two a new big two is about to emerge but you know we've had a a bit of disbelief on the part of michael for these nary 23 episodes he is wondering how in the world was image popular how with their delays with their lack of storytelling but dynamic art did they manage to sell so much and gain so much loyalty so chris we turn to you you came here tonight declaring that somehow you would defend Rob Liefeld and his mates at Image. So, make your case there, tough guy. Alright.
2: <laughs> so, you gotta understand, everything's in context here. So, comics went from, I, I can't say literally all story-driven, but it went to the Hot Artist era, okay? So, you had your Rob Liefelds, you had your your Todd McFarlane's and Jim Lee's, everyone was bursting at the seams. We had just came at hot on the heels of X-Men number one, X-Force number one, Spider-Man number one. You know, we were we were getting the goods now could anyone say that there were well-written masterpieces of course they weren't but hot artists were the buzzword and image took them all so all of a sudden you had this hot young company all the hot artists are now right there but i tell you what like a lot of changes were happening at the time you know what i mean i compare this i call this the attitude era of comics because all of a sudden there was a drastic shift we went from your safe wholesome you know comics code authority to something that was next level i mean these things had mega violence. They had some nudity. They had the sexiest characters ever to be ever seen on a page. Almost every character and I know you guys knocked this, you know, everybody looks like Cable. (laughs) Everybody (laughs) looks like Cable. Every single character resembled somebody from Marvel or DC. Everything was an echo, but that's part of the charm because you got to relive, like say for example, The Avengers, which were basically Youngblood. You got to see an updated version of The Avengers and they were popping off the page. They had the hot artists you know, the presentation. So when you took a look at what was on the shelf, what Marvel was offering compared to what Image was offering, all of a sudden you got higher quality paper. You had like coloring that just blew your mind, digital computerized coloring. I mean, it just it just made the books look like something completely different. You look inside the books, all of a sudden you get like people being maimed. There's death all over the place. You got your, you know, your top characters and topics we're not strayed away from. Like, you know, Spawn is dealing with child molesters, for God's sake. You got like Shadow Hockey. He ain't being Batman. He, you know, he's physically paralyzing people. You know what I mean? The Comics Code Authority, I mean, it was torn to tatters. But it was considered somehow they got branded with the cool alternative. Now Valiant on the other side was doing the complete opposite. So Valiant was not pushing a artist driven book. They were pushing well written stories. So now if we merged these two companies together and had the hot artists with actual stories, you know, you would have had something. But instead, what Image's big mistake was you you had a whole bunch of creators who were independent and they were creating a whole bunch of characters. Sounds exciting until you realize that about six months in all these people have egos. They're not going to want their characters to cross over. They don't have a cohesive universe and all of a sudden everything goes to pot. But man, I'm telling you right now when image launched on those shelves, there was nothing, nothing like it on the shelf and the buzz. When you walk into a comic store, it was all image. Every single thing that you talk about, it was spawn. It was savage dragon. I mean, it was young blood. I mean, when Rob Liefeld is telling you that it was it was the hot thing, it was crazy, gentlemen.
1: Yeah, Michael, I will tell you just uh, to put it in the filmmakers' perspective, they were the Michael Bay of comics, and we see people may diss Michael Bay, and yet how many Transformers movies got made? There are people who are buying the product, and that is what they want, and so it was leading us to this moment, the true act of hubris. So, Chris, <laughs> do you remember Deathmate being announced?
2: Oh, I do and man you you think about it so I was a huge Valiant fan and I, and I know that sounds strange to say <laughs> but uh, Valiant was kicking all sorts of butt you know what I mean uh, they had all these crazy characters they had a bunch of characters from like western publishing like Solar Man of the Atom they had Turok you know what I mean all kinds of great stuff but the thing with these guys was they wanted to cross over so what sounded like you know you got all these characters over here in Valiant Exo Man of War all these great characters and now they're going to cross over over with like Spawn and Savage Dragon, but no, it didn't happen that way. Because only half of the creators <laughs> decided they were going to jump on board, but us as re- us as readers, we didn't know that at the time. We thought it was just going to be Image, this monstrous, brand new, hot universe, you know, crossing over and 100%. Instead, you know what really bothers me about these team ups, and when DC and Marvel always team up, you know, you never get Spider-Man going to Gotham City. Instead, you have to create this large narrative where the universes collide and you know they amalgamate, and oh, and that's I what I love you. I can't here.
0: wait to get to the amalgam. I can't- can't,
2: wait. Oh, I can't oh, wait oh oh, so you just just to summarize yeah you know what this was on paper going to be the hottest ticket in town but boy did we find out that wasn't worth the money it was printed on
1: yeah let's talk a little bit about how it was promoted and how they uh, spread the word on this so in this issue there is a five page article about the origins of this crossover now according to kyle zimmerman from image quote basically rob liefeld jim lee and mark silvestri all thought those valiant characters are kind of cool it'd be fun to draw them sometime which seemed to be the philosophy of image in general this would be cool and thus a chronically late and (laughs) overordered six-part crossover was born the word fun is constantly thrown around as the main motivator gotta be fun it's gotta be fun though john hartz from valiant notes quote certainly combining valiant's rep for strong stories with images rep for strong artwork was a factor in making this work end quote which kind of cuts each company down is only half good at making comics don't you think with a statement like that it's like well we write good stories our art <laughs> their art is fantastic their stories <laughs> so <laughs> this is this is the best of both worlds you guys should just one of you should have bought the other out then you could have had a
2: <laughs> oh, you're competent
1: right. comics company but it's worth noting also that in between each page of the article there are ads for a bloodshot young blood crossover comic from extreme studios and then one that is promoted as part of deathmate red so just so you understand Rob Liefeld was part of the motivation behind this because it says Rob was quote, completely enamored of Bloodshot. He thought that was one of the coolest characters he had ever seen. Now, the way that they decided to finally pull this together and it was actually noted that Jim Lee and Paul Mazarski at Valiant were real buddy-buddy at this time and so they were the ones that really said, oh, we gotta do this, we gotta do this because they kept meeting up at conventions and whatnot. Now, the interesting thing there where it says that Jim Lee and Bob Mazarski that they were the ones that put it all together. Rob says on his Rob observations podcast that initially he was the one that contacted Valiant and said, Hey, I love your bloodshot character. I got an idea. Young blood bloodshot. I got the ad all figured out. This blood's for you. And that from there they said, ah, maybe we'll get back to you. Maybe we won't, you know, there wasn't much enthusiasm Then a few weeks later, Jim Lee calls up. He's like, Hey, I was talking to Bob Mazarski. We're going to do this huge crossover with Valiant valiant it's gonna be great and Rob's like wait a minute I came up with that idea so he explains that he really lost enthusiasm at that moment even though he said fine I'll be involved in it but they were just taking it away from him you know they were creating this whole narrative about this alternate universe that gets created because new characters are meshing and so he just didn't really care about it it was just lack of enthusiasm it wasn't fun for him anymore I don't want to play anymore I guess I'll just do it So what they decided was each book would not have a number, but a color. So there was an epilogue and a prologue that both had silver colors. There were previews that got packaged with other comics magazines, surprisingly not Wizard. There's one from Advanced Comics and then one from Previews. And so those were uh, pink, orange, and green. And then there was the main books, which were yellow and blue, being produced by Valiant, black and red being produced by image. So there you see that each was being assigned to one of the publishers to take care of in-house. So the other didn't have to wait for you know, whoever was going to be late, <clears throat> image, uh, to finish their work <laughs> so they could go to print. In fact, a uh, Bob Layton, you know, who became the editor in chief of Valiant actually tells a story about just on the prologue, they were trying to get this thing out on time. And in this article, they're constantly saying, Oh, you know, uh, Rob is penciling. He He's got his stuff done. He's done the layouts. Don't worry about it. And then Bob Layton says, I had to fly from New York to California, go to a hotel room where Rob Liefeld was staying and stand outside his door and say, you're not coming out until you give me those pages. a boy. See, now that's Bob Layton's side of the story. But the way Rob Liefeld recently explained is that he was avoiding Bob Layton because Bob Layton was supposed to be inking some of the pages for the prologue, and he didn't want Bob Layton to ink over him because he had seen some of the work he'd done and didn't think it meshed well with his style, and so Rob Liefeld was busy trying to get all the guys in his studio, who he considered to be the best inkers in the business, to finish the pages, and that was where the delay was. He was intentionally avoiding Bob Layton, and so the way the story's been told over the years, Rob couldn't get it out on time. It's like, it was unprofessional, but I meant to do that. And so Jim Lee says, quote, I don't foresee any delays. Everyone knows these books are high profile. We'll look especially bad if Valiant comes through on their end and we don't. Yes, Jim. Yes, you will. (laughs) So what you're
0: saying is, in the age of the gimmick, they tried to pull off a massive crossover gimmick, but I kind of lost a little bit of that long explanation because my my brain kind of fell asleep for a minute, but it seems like it was an ill-conceived idea that there was no clear leadership and follow through and therefore it causes kind of calamity, I guess you could
1: Well, say. ultimately, this is what happened. So Valiant got their issues, Yellow and Blue, out right on time. You know, Prologue came out, Yellow and Blue came out, and people were like, okay, here we go. And then a little bit later, we finally got Black that was being produced by Homage Studios, so Jim Lee was in charge of that one. But uh, then there was Deathmate Red, which uh, was left in the of rob liefeld and extreme studios uh which basically didn't come out for a year people had already like pre-ordered all these books the retailers were just going crazy they're like oh yeah everybody wants it so they bought all this stock but they didn't have stock being shipped to them so they had to cancel the orders and then check in with the readers hey did you still want that Deathmate mate red and they're like yeah forget about it and, they and, were given
2: and... those things away upon release because yeah. people who had ordered them uh, had waited so long that they had basically given up or forgotten that this thing was even an event. <laughs> I mean, you talk about an event that let the uh, the air out of the tires. Deathmate just fell apart. And I think it was Leifeld's last issue, was it not? Was, re- was Red? Yeah, it was Liefeld. Red. Yeah, yeah. so
1: th- that was him. And that, well, that was the thing. And so meanwhile, they're also going on tour when they should be at their studios you know, finishing the book. They're on tour promoting Deathmate. They're selling T-shirts. You know, they're selling hats. They're getting you out there to buy your copies of what they do have available, at least. Now, interesting thing about that tour is that that's the one thing Rob said was fun. You know, he didn't like working on the actual books, but going on tour, he said Valiant just went all out. They got these tour buses. He said they were basing it on his Extreme Tour, where he took all his guys around to comic shops, but they just blew it up and made it like a huge rock and roll endeavor, like they had an actual rock and roll tour manager running their buses and they would show up at different stops and he said he had fun with that but you know it just wasn't what he expected not what he wanted out of it so and it's funny because he usually has like really strong opinions but Made he's like nah, I just I didn't really care you can go listen to the full episode for those of you who still want to listen to his podcast it's interesting to hear how that all came together in his mind so yeah it was not well received by the end of it but, yeah this is the perennial quarter bin book you will find it in every quarter bin one color or the other of Deathmate you want, want an interesting Deathmate story yes
2: so Deathmate yellow launched and I mean when we got it we thought it was green so we were always looking for like where's the yellow copy but instead it was a, like it was like a pea yellow we'll call it I don't know how to describe it but it was like the weirdest weirdest color yellow you'll ever see and so you know some coloring genius didn't figure the whole logistics part of the coloring part on that one so just yet another disaster of Deathmate.
1: you will hear our review of Deathmate at the end of the episode we got to give michael some time to read it while we're talking about other stuff
2: <laughs>
0: yeah yeah so you're not getting me excited for this at all that i'm going to read this i am not excited about this making that well aware for everyone that i am
2: not looking forward to this Re- read the image books they were a breezy read oh
1: wonderful <laughs> we will get into it oh i will tell you so now regarding the Glut, as it was being called here in an editorial by Patrick Daniel O'Neill of new comics publishers releasing product in the summer of 1993. His take was retailers do not have the space or the cash flow to order all the books that are being offered and solicited. And he predicts this will lead to many shops going out of business. And I mean, the bubble was about to burst very shortly after this. It was just like everybody saw 90, 91, 91, how great things were going so a million investors start jumping in and they're saying yes this is the hot new thing and yeah supply and demand folks supply and demand you put too much out there there's just not enough interest or availability of cash to consume it all but O'Neill suggests ordering ahead of time so your comic shop owner knows they can count on selling that book instead of losing money on their speculative buying but then confusingly he ends his editorial it almost seems like somebody else jumped did at the end and added this because he basically goes on this diatribe about he's like now listen to this old codger back in 1963 <laughs> a lot of people passed up fantastic four number one and they are kicking themselves now so buy as many number one issues as you can i was like Whoa. huh you just talked about how this isn't gonna work out well at all wait a couple of years pal yeah yeah <laughs> going on though we're talking about the glut this glut of 1993 another series of books that would haunt quarter bins for decades to come we've mentioned this before the 16th issue comics greatest world event mentioned previously it is a subject of a massive article laying out all the plans I'm always amazed you know how detailed a lot of these articles get in wizard basically dark horse admits that they held off on releasing superhero books all this time because they wanted to be successful Successful diversifying their output so they had creator owned and licensed titles first doing gangbusters with that stuff so comics greatest world though they developed backwards they said by first creating locations for their universes and then developing the characters based on the imaginary cities that they would live in oh this type of character when they had powers would do this if they lived in this type of city so basically there are four books released for the four cities of this. Universe. So the cities are Arcadia, Golden City, Steel Harbor, and the Vortex. And then also they mentioned they promoted this with big names like George Perez and Frank Miller and Art Adams. But they're just doing covers. We've talked about this before. We hate that. Oh yeah,
2: no, no. I uh, listen. I'm going to fully agree with you guys on that because there's nothing more disappointing than getting a book with like an absolutely fabulous cover, and then you open up the inside and it looks like it's drawn by a five year old. I mean. And oh, it is just whoa. and and it still happens to this day, oh, like, yeah i've bought i can't even tell you how
0: many books and this tends to be more prevalent in marvel than dc where they have these breathtaking covers drawn by amazing artists and you open this thing up and it looks like it was drawn like you said by a kindergartner it's unbelievable how they they get away with doing that kind of stuff
2: and it really bums me out well think about a cover in 2020 i mean what does a cover mean in 2020 like literally like it, it doesn't make sense of what's in the, the actual issue. You know what I mean? If you went to pick up a comic in the 90s, at least the cover would frame up somewhat of what the story would be on the interior, for the most part. Now you're just getting like a pin-up, if you're lucky, because then, you know, then you're going to get your sketch variant, and your you know, you just your blank cover, I mean, and, or they just do a different character altogether that's not even in the book, so... Uh, you <laughs> oh, know, like, I've seen
0: that so many times, where they're like, be ready for so-and-so, he's gonna attack, and it's like, the last panel of the last page when that character shows up and you're just like, I just wasted $4 and 30 minutes of my life reading this nonsense that had nothing to do with the cover and it just makes me so infuriated and I mean I have books and books like I I have in my collection of long boxes a bin that I just call miscellaneous for like, <laughs> I'll pick up a one off, I'll read it, hoping it's gonna be some good arc and I'll hate the first issue and I just throw it in miscellaneous. <laughs> see ya, wouldn't want to be ya. Goodbye.
2: <laughs> no, I'm talking about like so say for a classic example, if you went to the comic shop right now, you would see that they Marvel just recently reacquired from Dark Horse nonetheless the alien franchise, okay? So they have it back and they're doing all kinds of alien variants on their covers, okay? Yeah, I noticed. Now, that. Yeah. So if you're going into a comic shop, you're thinking, Oh my god, you know, the, you know, the Avengers are crossing over with Alien just for for example, you know what i mean? No, they're it's actually not. They're not even in the book. Yeah. Like you talk about confusion. Can you tell right now if you walked into a comic shop and you looked up on a wall, you can't even tell like issue 2 from issue 1 because you could have literally a wall full of issue 1s and you would have no idea that they're a different comic, you know what i mean? Like or or the same comic. It's really really, i don't know
0: about a year ago they did that with mary jane watson too where she was on the cover of every single thing and there was a particular cover of fantastic four where she's in like a costume and i'm like oh cool like she's gonna be like you know they were kind of like alluding that she was gonna get some sort of powers and then she's just not in the book she just shows up (laughs) for like one panel where she talks to them and says oh hi and like gone And I was like, it's a beautiful cover, too, and I love it. And I own the – and I'm like, like, you got to be kidding me. And they do this stuff all the time. And recently, Marvel's been doing this thing where they brought back Alex Ross, and he's doing, like, painted covers of all kinds of heroes. And I will admit, I've bought four or five different books just because of the Alex Ross cover. I've bought – you know a medusa one that came out i bought invisible woman i have a whole stack of them i'm never gonna read the issue that i bought i just bought it for the cover and that's just my foolishness but it looks cool and i like it and i'm never gonna get the poster so i want it
1: well we have plenty of marvel news here michael because back then uh they were just as much about making that money and they wanted to control the cash flow
0: gotta get that paper
1: yeah yeah. (laughs) now wizard news announces that marvel has purchased toy biz yes they've been making a bundle on licensing their characters to Toy Biz, now it will all be theirs. And this is just months after having bought Fleer Trading Card Company so they could also control all the money that was supposed to be coming in from the trading card sales. So this is kind of crazy in that this is the accumulation of more debt. You know, if you buy a company, you don't just get that money and you get the overhead that it takes to run that company. And so ultimately, this leads to Marvel's bankruptcy just a few years from now. So this is this is the beginning of that. Let's buy this. Let's buy that.
0: It's kind of fascinating. It, it, like You can see the writing on the wall looking oh, yeah. at it from a 5,000-foot you know, like lens. You're like, oh, I see where this is going. Like you, you can tell. And I've actually, though I've made it public knowledge, I've kind of gotten out of the Funko Pop game. I've kind of been a little bit here and there getting into the action figure game again since, like, McFarlane's been doing a lot of DC figures. And so I've ordered a few of those. And they're really cool and you know i just got the uh, black widow white widow action figure and these figures look really really cool i have to admit i really like them but still to this day like they're not as iconic or as i think beautiful as the figures we would have back in the late 80s early 90s you know i don't like the seeing all the joints and everything i don't i'd rather them look like they're just standing in a heroic pose as opposed to trying to pose them and see all the articulation and have these little you know gears and mechanisms on their legs and arms you know what i mean
1: well they got to figure out more gimmicks to sell more product michael so we're gonna give you so many more action figures to come now they're saying that they are announcing major changes to daredevil including a new crime-fighting partner and a costume change which toy biz will produce a variant of their daredevil figure with that costume change but you also mentioned alex ross well it seems there's something coming up called marvels but there is no mention of alex ross because he was not a marquee name yet
0: that's weird because marvels is back now like yeah. literally it's back right now
1: then there's a uh-oh damn it. Yes, the back Inside cover features an ad for the first Marvel swimsuit special with a live model in a bikini named Dawn, who they claim is the designer of the book. They put it this way If Dawn leaves you breathless, wait till you see the magazine she's designed. Marvel swimsuit special, the hottest superheroes by the coolest artists. So, yeah, way to go, Marvel. Objectifying skilled members of your staff to sell magazines of imaginary characters in speedos and bikinis here's
2: here's I, what i'll tell you and it and it's a full-on admission so so the marvel swimsuit editions gentlemen i'll just i'll just leave you with this they did their job that's how, that's <laughs> all i say. Wait, she's a
1: staff member at Marvel?
2: She's not just a model?
1: According to this ad, she is the designer of the Marvel swimsuit special.
0: Okay, so I want to find out in the not-too-distant future how many lawsuits happened because of this. I really want to know. (laughs) It was a different
2: time,
1: Michael.
0: Yeah, I guess so. Oh, boy.
1: (laughs) DC seemed to be a little bit more respectful of their female editors and employees. Karen Berger, who is the group editor of DC's Vertigo line, is revealing her plans because this thing is really kicking off now. So it's noted that a collection of Neil Gaiman's Books of Magic series was the first book officially released with a Vertigo logo on the cover, but the first original title that was released through the imprint was Death, the High Cost of Living, which was a miniseries that was spinning out out of the Sandman series. And while they have pulled some of their existing for mature readers-only books like Sandman, Doom Patrol relaunch, Jonah Hex, and Swamp Thing, they've put all those under the Vertigo imprint. They also have a lot of new books. These edgy comics. Enigma, Kid Eternity, Mercy, Sebastian O, huh?
2: All popular titles.
1: Yes, all of them. Sandman Mystery Theater. Now that one did get a little bit of acclaim. There were a few others in there, but Berger defines Vertigo Was quote the way the writer and artist make you see the world it's not necessarily horror not necessarily weird or supernatural it's more a case of looking at reality in strange ways Mm. how you doing Yeah, now she is admitting that what they're trying to do is attract an older audience who doesn't usually read comics by creating stories with adult themes. And she's especially excited about a book called The Extremists. Quote, it's filled with sexuality and violence. It's a dangerous book. An unusually strong piece of work. I love it. So everyone is also relieved to hear, by the way, that Neil Gaiman is not ending his Sandman run with issue 50, which had just come out. No, he's going to continue on for at least ten to fifteen more issues, then he'll do some one-shots after the fact. So you know, as long as Neil gaiman's there, they feel like they are in good shape. But here's the question for you, Chris: Did they bring you in with their sexuality and violence?
2: <laughs> yes. You know what? As especially as a younger reader, so I would I would thumb through some of these books, and you know, depending on what I saw during my first initial glances, it would make my my purchase decision. So yeah, if I saw some lady parts, yeah, that thing was going in the bag. <laughs> (laughs)
1: sad but true yeah, these always actually felt dangerous to me. So when I was at the comic shop, when I just looked at the cover art, which everybody was kind of doing their variation on Dave McKean, right? So they're like, he's doing these weirdo Sam Ed covers, which just don't really make a whole lot of sense. It's lots of just, you know, pastiche of different elements all thrown together. So that way, everything was like stretched out characters in agony and whatever. So I was like, oh. And even the ones that looked more comic booky, where they had like more illustrated covers, it was still just kind of like, I don't know. If this is gonna be for me i mean even like the doom patrol reboot they're talking about how they're writing it from the perspective of now everybody who lives in the doom patrol mansion died during some sexual escapade <laughs> it's
2: like what
1: okay. come oh, on boy. guys
2: <laughs> yeah so, some of these books were too weird like they literally took the joy out of reading the book i mean you know you always want a book like take jonah hex for example you know you want to ramp up the supernatural element you want to you know ramp up the uh the violence in those things of course you know you, you can make a much better book when you when you take the code away you know what i mean and you add those elements but when you make it so weird that it's unrecognizable i think that's where vertigo lost me on a lot of their titles
1: yeah for sure and also i'm not a fan of the perspective of we want to bring in people who don't usually read comics well let them keep reading or watching what they watch don't (laughs) cater to them we're doing what we do in comics and we like it so keep it up
0: you know for me back then 11 12 13 years old i was not picking up vertigo books at all i couldn't tell you if i even knew if they existed back then i don't think it really caught my attention till maybe like probably the 2000 area where like why the last man came out that's probably the first book that i really was like wow this is an interesting title and i started reading a lot of vertigo stories like 100 bullets and stuff like that but back then i wasn't into that kind of comic book at that age age, and it never, nothing really gravitated to me. I didn't read Sandman until I was an adult, really and truly, so yeah, I don't know. It's it's a weird try-to-target market. It wasn't for us, really. I mean, for Adam and I, I, would say in particular, at that age.
1: Now, Chris, I think you need to bring a little levity to the situation here. We, we gotta wash this darkness of the Vertigo titles out of here. Have, a, have some yuck-yucks. So uh, why don't you tell us about this interesting little comedy piece they shoved in the back of the magazine called the top 10 downsides of living in the x-mansion
2: <laughs>
1: top 10 downsides to living
2: in the x-mansion number 10 finding long blue hairs in your scrambled eggs that's that's always a bad oh, deal that's 10 that's probably that'd be higher up on the list for me <laughs> oh man nothing worse and you know it, as long as it's not you know one of those barbie type blue hairs that's all you gotta remember uh anyway, <laughs> Number nine, uh, having to help Professor X get on and off the can.
1: Come on, Wizard. Oh, Come on. That's that, more that's damage control right people. there.
2: Yeah, that's a little <laughs> offensive, I have to say. Oh, yeah. wow. Terrible people, these people. Number eight, giant purple and red robots always looking in the bathroom window at the most inopportune times. They're all about that bathroom action in there. <laughs> <laughs> True. Number seven is definitely appropriate. Having the hottest, sexiest babe on the planet walking around in the skimpiest outfit imaginable, and she's a telepath.
1: Oh, yikes!
2: That's not good. Number six, that moody archangel. Period. No. Just, just that. That's all. It says. <laughs> I agree with number five. Wimpy Excalibur members calling to see if they can hang out and watch Seinfeld. (laughs) (laughs) Seinfeld. Not Liefeld. Seinfeld. That one's for you, Robbie. (laughs) Number four. The Beast on Hot Summer Days. Wow.
1: Beast. They want him out. That blue
2: fur is comedy gold, gentlemen. Comedy gold. It's gold, Jerry. Uh, Gold. All right. Number three. All the aces are missing from the playing cards. Get it? Gambit? Oh, Oh,
1: that guy.
2: I got a million of them.
1: I'm here all night. Number
2: two, just like that, Greg Brady, Storm, get the first crack at the attic. Uh,
1: You you had to watch the Brady Bunch to know that Greg Brady got to have his little bachelor pad in the attic of the Brady home, and Storm lives in the attic also. So that's a head scratcher. You got to think about that one. (laughs) (laughs) all right
2: and number one get ready for comedy hijinks gentlemen get ready i hope you're sitting down number one the way the soap looks after wolverine gets out of the tub
1: geek humor what are you gonna do but speaking of geeks sometimes we like to find that independent stuff that makes us cool and edgy because we're reading the obscure comics that's why this month in palmer's picks tom palmer is talking about concrete by paul chadwick he actually began his career as a storyboard artist on films like Strange Brew, eh? Hey, perfect! That's your <laughs> national film of Canada, isn't it, Chris? Gotta watch some
2: hockey, eh? Got some back bacon there.
1: And he also worked on Pee Wee's Big Adventure, which might as well be our official film of the United States, so
2: No, no comments.
1: He ended up getting his first comics work on the final issue of Dazzler at Marvel Comics. That was the Paul Chadwick debut. But then, he basically got burned out working for, you know, the big boys, and he started publishing his concrete stories in Dark Horse Presents, where he, quote, focuses more on human concerns and character-driven tensions instead of the typical comic book hero-villain struggles. So, guys, I'm a massive fan of concrete, but Chris, have you ever grabbed an issue here or there
2: so i've had yeah he so he was in dark he was like a backup feature at the time that i was that i read a bit of. i've never read like a solo issue of concrete i've always read them in like dark horse presents and different things like that Mm -hmm. and yeah i mean you know what it was fine enough it was something different you got a different perspective and yeah and an interesting character as well so I, i i don't have anything bad to say about concrete
1: yeah, I mean they're mostly one shots for the most part or yeah. like you say backup stories and then they get collected. So he's always got a, a beginning, middle and end to a story which is very satisfying. Thank goodness. Yeah, get those in your little bite-sized chunks. You're just like you care about these characters and it's thoughtful and yeah, it's, it's nice stuff.
0: Growing up in a construction family, I have mixed concrete, I have po- poured concrete, <laughs> but I've never read a concrete book. I didn't even know that existed.
1: That's next on the list. You you gotta Uh, read some Madman,
0: then some concrete, Michael. Why why do you hate me so much?
1: (laughs) I'm (laughs) expanding your
0: mind, man! I'm almost 40. I can't extend my mind any further.
1: (laughs) Well, maybe you want to go back to the 40s, Michael, because this next article is titled Shazam! It's the Big Red Cheese. And it chronicles the history of Captain Marvel by Fawcett Comics. So created in 1939 by Bill Parker, initially conceived as Captain Fawcett, thunder who led a group of lieutenants who each had one power of the greek gods but he was eventually retooled and renamed captain marvel with all the powers combined into one and adding the alter ego of a small boy named billy batson who transforms into this adult superhero and it was all in whiz comics number one in 1940 now what's interesting about captain marvel is that at the time he was groundbreaking just in the field of comic He introduced regular crossovers because they would have other faucet heroes, the likes of Bullet Man, that would come in and out of stories and team ups with Captain Marvel. They also introduced the idea of continuity heavy stories. So there was an art called the Monster Society of Evil, which was a storyline that ran for four years over 25 issues. Now, not all consecutively, but the storyline, you would pick it up and be like, oh, this is a Monster Society of Evil evil chapter, you know, so you gotta get it and it follows through. But... Captain Marvel was enormously popular at the time but that after having continuous legal trouble with DC Comics over copyright infringement that they claimed on their character of Superman Fawcett stopped publishing Captain Marvel 1953 that ironically DC picked up the rights to the characters but not the name which Marvel then copyrighted themselves and created Marvel. which I actually recently picked up the first appearance of Captain Marvel a vintage copy yeah Uh, it's not in the great Greatest condition, but it's still um, and a very cool thing to look at. And, and then now DC can only publish the character under the name Shazam, which many people are aware of now of the movie and people from the '70s do the live action TV series that was uh, teamed with ISIS. But according to the writer of this article, Jack Curtin, who is the resident old man at Wizard, like he writes about comics from the 40s and he always does a great job. The character hasn't been handled well at all over those last 40 years up to this point in 1993. So I'm curious for you guys, what is your reading history with Captain Marvel and what is your favorite incarnation of the character? Michael, you're... Our DC guy. So, of what they've done with him and his universe, what have you enjoyed?
0: Well, without question, I mean the probably the most significant and most important incarnation of Shazam, Captain Marvel, is Kingdom Come. Without question, oh yeah, Uh, I love that story. I love his role in that story. I also really, really like a lot of the Jeff John stuff that they've done with him in the past couple of years. I actually. Funny enough, one of my favorite DC characters is actually Mary Marvel. And I just like, you know, the dynamic of the Marvel family, you know, with with Freddie Freeman and all that kind of stuff. It's funny just how they do do the alliteration of their names. And I've always liked the idea of the the kid who could be Superman kind of a thing. And, you know, I, I think actually one of my first major, major like reveals or understandings of captain marvel shazam was in the superman animated series or or justice league animated series when he you know shows up for the first time and superman is kind of like Jealous of him and they sort of duke it out a little bit. I love that stuff.
1: So I actually was introduced to Captain Marvel through the old cereals. Oh, all right. Those were great. Not breakfast cereal. Renting (laughs) at our local library the VHS tapes of the black and white adventures of Captain Marvel that uh, we own from back in the day. And they actually had some pretty cool effects. And I think he fought like the black scorpion was like the bad guy in that or something. And yeah, but it was just so cool every time. Shazam! big poof of smoke and then there's the guy in the costume you know so I got a kick out of that and then I eventually picked up a copy of DC Comics Presents number 49 because it had Captain Marvel and Superman on the cover and I was only like four months old when this thing was actually on the shelves in 82 but this is like a story where they were kind of trying to reintroduce Captain Marvel in a weird way because it's like this boy named Billy Batson who lives you know in earth one and on this world and he imagines that he is captain marvel like but but then like at the end they're like well it, he wasn't really captain marvel but he's got like all the elements of the same universe that billy batson inhabited so it's kind of like huh what were they going for here they're just teasing us i guess and i was like oh oh wow well. but yeah so that's where i know the character from and of course yeah kingdom come i've noticed you know over the years like how much attention mary marvel had gotten and things like that but chris i'm curious curious for you where how far back do you go all right, so I actually picked up. Now this this was around '85, I
2: think 1985. I was at a comic book shop and I picked up the original Shazam number one. And this is the '70s, the one where they reintroduced them. Right. And you know, Superman is boldly on the cover, of course, because you know DC never ever had the faith in the big red cheese to sell his own comic book. But these were mostly reprints of the old Fawcett stuff with like a with a new story sprinkled in. You know what I mean? So I love the old Golden Age type of thing. But the one story that that really catches me was around 1987. When they were relaunching, like uh, it was right after Crisis and they had Legend. So they were reforming the Justice League, okay? In April of 87, they released what was called Shazam, the New Beginning. And it took a brand new twist. So it was done by Roy Thomas. And this one, Billy Batson is orphaned. So his parents die in a car accident, okay? And all of a sudden, there's a big battle for custody of the boy. And he ends up in the custody of the evil Dr. Savannah, who's just basically using Billy Batson to, you know, claim his parents' inheritance. And, of course, all the stuff happens. You know, he brings Black Adam back and different things like that. But it was a four-issue miniseries, and it's really, really good. It's really good. And it leads into the character eventually debuting with, you know, the Bwahaha Justice League era. So I would highly recommend that. But, yeah, for me, Shazam is definitely Kingdom Come, like Michael said. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, and I, Chris, I'm sure you'll have an opinion on this as well. But I think for Michael and I, we are even bigger fans of the knockoff British Captain Marvel with Miracle Man. Oh, oh, oh,
2: that's awesome! Yeah,
1: Miracle Man is
0: for those who are listening. If you ever want to read something that will be transformative and a brilliant, brilliant thing, Miracle Man is unbelievable. It's literally the first statue I ever bought was a Miracle Man statue. I have every single issue when they did the reprints a few years ago. Oh man, it's
2: it's some good stuff, and it's i love that it's, book. it's really deep and it really deconstructs the uh the golden age of comic books you know what i mean yeah and, and almost like it's a fever dream you know what i mean it, it is kind of like that but it's it's also it's weird in the
0: sense that like when you read it as it progresses on throughout all the issues and i have all of them it feels very relatable to now and today in the way like the character kind of evolves. It's it's just it's some good yeah. stuff. It's some. He's got, really got like PTSD,
2: severe PTSD, severe and all that stuff. You don't know what's PTSD. real.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was way ahead of its time, and like light years ahead of its.
2: Time. This is what heroes in crisis should have been from DC. Like Agreed. this is the way it should have been written. It was perfect.
1: Now what's interesting is you know we're going back to the forties, but now in this issue they are taking us into the 90s yeah with generation x no 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 not generation x for marvel no this is featured in this issue in five separate ads that are in a linear position you know on every other page is ads for gen x yes which is promoted as coming in august 1993 and being created by jim lee now gen x as it was called here Features all four of the main characters, so you have Fairchild, Burnout, Grunge, even Freefall. They're all there. Now, you know this because they will eventually become Gen 13 when it's actually released the next year as a miniseries. We're going to get into this uh, shortly, but Gen 13, the only thing they premiered in 1993 is Deathmate Black. So you will get to hear from Gen 13. That is a part of it, Michael. But uh, yeah, this is just very exciting to me, this whole idea that they were promoted heavily as Gen X and so much so that I actually bought uh, a different comic that had this same ad structure and I ripped it apart and took all those individual ads and put them into a frame because I just think it's an interesting piece of history from a series that I ended up loving when it went Do you still uh, have that? I do. We will put up a picture of it for sure. Please, please put it up on our social. I have to see this. (laughs) Now, what's uh, very interesting here, Michael and Chris, is that buried behind the price guide, all right? So now as the way they've structured the magazine, the price guide is in the very back and it was kind of like in the middle for a while. Like it was a weird situation in the early days. But now uh, hidden after the price guide is something that uh, I was not expecting to see. In fact, I was like flipping through and I was like, wait a minute, what is, what is this shoved here? It says, quote, the newest creation from the fertile imagination of rob liefeld (laughs) fertilized by what we won't say did he really have a fertile imagination or was it the same exact character just like (laughs) (laughs) reimagined but extreme studios presents sword and stone okay and this is a wizard is proud to unveil it they say it's for the first time anywhere and so this appears to be a comic that was either produced only for wizard or just going to be previewed in wizard and if anybody liked it he would have produced it but i did not find any record of this comic called sword and stone ever oh, coming say, out of extreme studios
2: i don't think it exists does it
1: no no it it does not uh so basically all it is is there's two characters one is a young boy from the past named sword he has swords then the other (laughs) is a dread cybernaut from the future and his name is stone don't know why I wonder what Stone looks like. Yes, Stone has, how would you describe this? He, he has a cable body and his hands are dust buster hoses. <laughs> I don't understand what the point of these hands are. It's very odd, uh, but he likes to punch people and sword likes to slash people and basically they are promising that they're going to go on adventures together like it literally it doesn't set up anything here uh other than they've waged battle upon those who would stop them in their pursuit which kind of feels like rob liefeld's mo right he's like i will battle everybody are you in my way i will destroy you <laughs> and so yeah so it's one of those things i'm just like curious to see if in issue 24 we get the next installment of sword and stone but i hope we don't <laughs> <laughs> i want more now because yeah. of that revelation <laughs> <laughs> uh but michael you know we want to hear about the exciting world of movies and everything else so why don't you take us into heroes in motion
0: So it's mentioned that the Crow movie, which was supposed to be released on August 20th of 93, is in limbo due to the death of star Brandon Lee on the set of the film, just four days left of shooting, when a gun supposedly loaded with blanks, shot a 44 caliber bullet into his abdomen. This was one of many accidents on set, which included a carpenter being electrocuted, uh, an equipment truck catching fire, a storm destroying many of the sets, and a disgruntled sculptor for the movie driving his car through a plaster shop. The filmmakers say they can complete the film with a stuntman, and that's basically what happened, obviously, as we all know now in the future. The film was then released, and uh, a hit that spawned several sequels, obviously none of which with Brandon Lee, but they're all kind of like, you know, different people that become The Crow.
2: You know, did what did you guys think of the movie The Crow? oh man it was listen the crow when it launched back in the day um i mean it was it was big news i mean you know people were familiar with the the mike barr comic and just to see another comic character hitting the screen and i know you guys buried dark the other day <laughs> which <we'll laughs> one of us did <laughs> uh, yeah what you, that's exactly right michael shame on you but uh, but anyway i have to say like uh, the crow was 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 all the buzz back then i mean you know we we ran to the theater to see it to check it out it had a lot of buzz i thought it was handled really well brandon lee was a megastar and you know there was a you know a lot of stories surrounding his death so i think that brought people to the theater as well and you know we ended up getting several sequels to this thing but uh i don't think any of them were any better than brandon lee's version of this because i thought it was really really well done
1: i mean honestly i credit the crow with all the goth kids in my high school in the late 90s you know what i'm saying like that was it
2: Yeah. yeah it was a culture shifter
0: It's one of those films where I don't know if he had lived, if the film would have gotten as much buzz as it did. Similarly to like the dark Knight, you know, with the the passing of Heath Ledger, everybody was like, I have to go see this film. Like it was, there was so much like mystery behind everything. And because he's Bruce Lee's son and he also, you know, died tragically. It was, there was a lot of buzz about it long before the internet that it, really made this film do pretty well in the box office and it was actually quite a good movie and i remember the ending of the film it's hard to really tell other than a few moments where the stunt double is and brandon lee is not
2: oh yeah no it was it was really well done and i think i think the movie itself was a great tribute to brandon lee as well i mean just top notch
0: yeah totally speaking of delayed movies robert townsend's meteor man has been delayed until June of '93. Look forward to our coverage of that film in December to help me clear out the dark man gobbledygook that's trapped inside of my brain at this time. <laughs> <laughs> it's also mentioned that the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers are being prepared for a fall debut with 40 animated episodes. Clearly, Mangles was unaware of the live-action martial arts phenomenon that was about to dominate children's entertainment. It was like as soon as Saved by the Bell kind of went away, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers kind of like rose to prominence, you know?
1: Well, then they killed the Ninja Turtles, man. I mean, that was it. Yeah, they really
2: did. I need to, I need to interject with a sidebar on Mighty Morphin Power Rangers toys. Yes, please so, do. I I have the original first line of like. Every single, every single thing that was released from the Zords to the, wow. to the, the regular wow. action figures to the just the standard, I guess they were six-inch. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what they were. But anyway, they, they had the, the entire set. My, well, actually, my brother owned them. So picture Christmas night. You know, all our gifts are open. My brother has this entire set of Power Rangers, underneath the tree. They're all displayed. They're perfect. They're holding their swords. All the zords are complete. They're built. And my friends and I decided we were going to have a wrestling match in the living room. Oh, no. no. <laughs> One of my friends, going. guys, accidentally gets powerbombed all over close to the tree and he smashes on top of every single one of my brother's power rings oh. Oh. I'm telling you right now, I looked down and there was pieces of broken Zord all over the Christmas tree. Oh. And I tell you what, my parents and my brother was out at that point, but I don't think he has any idea, but a lot of his uh, his Zord toys are uh, compliments of crazy glue right now because I patched <laughs> those babies
1: back together cotton fast. <laughs> wow, because those were so hard to get back they were in the hard. day. Yeah,
2: they were like, wrong. the, the they fact were...
1: that they were able to get the whole series and then destroyed. Oh, the
2: fine folks at the Sears catalog.
1: Were you guys working for Rita Repulsa? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know the one thing about Power Rangers that always kind of bummed me out? I had envisioned it as being the live action version of Voltron. Mm-hmm. And it was probably as close as we could have got to a live action Voltron back then. But there was always some element of it that I wanted more out of it a little bit. I just. I don't. Like. I like Power Rangers. I, I watched it religiously. But I wasn't obsessed with it like some other of my friends. Because it just. I wanted it to be more like a Voltron kind of a thing, and it just wasn't.
1: I was all about the transformation so much so, so I was in junior high and you know, I was in sixth grade when it premiered. I made a power morpher out of cardboard and tinfoil and wore it under my clothes walking around junior high oh that must have gone over real well (laughs) nobody (laughs) knew but i was ready if anybody attacked if there were any putties in the gym i was gonna transform and i would take them on
0: yeah, that wouldn't have flown to my school. I would have been <laughs> stuffed in a locker that day. It was a, a real phenomenon that show, though. It was, you know, other than that, we mostly had just cartoons. And this was a live-action show, and it was really, you know, and exciting. And an
1: empire, and many more shows to come. Oh yeah. my
0: god, a you know, multi-billion-dollar corporation in empire for sure. But speaking of what was assumed to be an animated series, there's another animated series that we talked about recently called Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. You remember this one, Adam? Oh, yes. So while the series was not a hit, it did feature the involvement of the writer, one of my favorite of all time uh, movies or franchises or whatever, Die Hard, Steven D'Souza uh, is listed here as the script supervisor for the series. He would go on next to direct the live-action Street Fighter movie, which, you haven't seen that movie with Jean-Claude Van Damme, it is a great movie, just, you know, whatever it is, but blanking on his name... Raul Julia? Yeah, like... Oh just to see if Raul Julia's performance of M Bison is just like the top it's such a great performance and another person who again died too soon and would have been amazing in you know sequels of that movie continuing their coverage of the Lois and Clark new adventures of Superman it's announced that Dean Cain will be Clark Kent with the byline little known actor gets Superman role <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's oh rough. man that's 14
2: kate is just being dragged through the mud in 2020 poor guy oh, yes i love the guy back then
0: he was a football player too like he was an athlete yeah. like you know he was like legit Well, terry hatcher will portray lois lane and i i honestly have to say she did play a
2: great lois lane she oh, had yeah. this
0: like oh. snarky this to her that was just
2: fantastic michael it's... terry terry hatcher is responsible for me losing a number of tube socks
1: <laughs> oh my God! Damage control, Damage control, Damage control. God.
0: <laughs> it's noted that that Dean Cain was recently on Beverly Hills 90210, and Terry Hatcher played Stallone's sister in Tango and Cash.
1: Now I got to see that movie. I mean, I have that movie on VHS, but I haven't actually ever watched it. You ever like...
2: watched Tango and Cash?
1: No. And you
2: made me watch Darkman. <laughs> <laughs> is that Stallone and Kurt Russell? Yes, it is. And yes. Terry Hatcher. Holy yeah. cow! Worlds the, collide. My my, I don't want to give away too
0: much of of Tango and Cash. 30 plus years later. But one of my favorite moments in that movie is they're trying to escape a building and they take their belts off and they wrap them around their wrists and flip them over an electrical line. And they zip line holding their belts and like, like like sparks come off of it, and for, for so long when I was like a like a kid, I would try to like you know when you have like the monkey bars, and they had those like two parallel bars that you could hang down. I would take my belt and try to do it, and I broke so many belts trying to oh, do that, wow. <laughs> like falling into the gravel. I'm like oh god. <laughs> <laughs> the worst. So, yeah, that's a true story for you, folks. Finally, it's announced that Christopher Reeve has officially declined to participate in the new Superman movie that has been teased for several months, stating it really shouldn't be made right
2: now. Wow. If he said <laughs> it, it probably shouldn't have been made. So, is um, this Superman 5 they're talking about here?
0: Yeah. yeah. So. We will get a new Superman this year, but just not on the big screen. With poor Dean Kane dragging right. through the mud. So, Adam, now that we've finished our Heroes in Motion, what do you have for Guy Gardner's Gimmicks a Go Go?
2: How bizarre! How bizarre!
0: How bizarre! Ooh, baby. Ooh, baby, baby.
1: This summer 1993 guys i mean this is it i mean the guy garner's gimmicks a go-go has just been growing and growing and growing with each successive issue it is amazing who is getting in on this now the first thing is a little bit of follow-up because as mentioned on a past episode adhesive comics released the first comic book with a bullet hole that was shot through it But now, Adhesive is taking issue with Malibu Comics doing, quote, a really poor imitation of a gimmick that was stupid to begin with, because they did it with their issue number five of The Protectors. But Alan Payne, Malibu's marketing director, states that it was his idea to do it, and he came up with it years ago when working in a comic book store. So now the gimmick wars have begun. People are back, I came up with that gimmick first, no, I originated that gimmick. So, I mean, everybody wants the credit around here (laughs) next up is arc omics or r comics a capital a capital r capital c and then omics this is how they spell everything over and over again so r comics is releasing the first fully lenticular cover with art comics premiere number one for those of you who don't know the concept of lenticular, you remember those stickers and everything else back in the day. When you tilt them, they change the image, right? So on the cover, their team called the Arcosmos, and they are posed initially, and when tilted, they jump into action. And In an all-text ad that looks like it was typed out on a Commodore 64, <laughs> Art Comics states, quote, There's been some concern regarding who we are. <laughs> <laughs> which doesn't bode well for a company that is nothing more than a gimmick cover at this point. So and I don't Ouch. believe they went on to produce much more. But yeah, that's uh, very exciting. If somebody has that lenticular cover from Art Comics, please share it with us. Uh, speaking of those covers just made of materials you didn't expect, Continuity Comics is releasing all of their June issues with indestructible covers made of tyvek which is the same material used on heavy duty fedex envelopes but they say it cannot be ripped it cannot be permanently bent tyvek is indestructible
2: I did, never did get those. I collected a ton of continuity comics, but I don't remember them made a Tyvek.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah, they said it was coming out, you know, around the time of their uh, Death Watch 2000 event, so... Maybe I have some. I must dig into my
2: uh, rations here and see if I, my copy of Megalith, the ultimate man.
1: <laughs> also, if you have, Chris, uh, Shebat number three, Valeria the Shebat number three, we still need to confirm if Spawn does, in fact, make an appearance in that book.
2: Valeria Shebat number three
1: Yes mm, so
2: that's that's the trick is it okay'll well, I'll, I'll dig into the uh, dig into the archives to see if it actually happens. So it's number three.
1: Number three yes I will solve the riddle gentlemen on the case uh now image is releasing shaman's tears number two this month which is solicited as featuring an eight panel fold out cover but in the most hypocritical move ever the ad for shaman's tears number three in this issue says quote gold covers platinum editions holograms die cuts prism covers bagged edition card inserts Remember when you bought a comic book just because it had the best bleepin' story on the comic racks? (laughs) Yikes. Yeah, that eight-panel fold-out cover, uh, that was just a fluke. No, no, we're about the story here. This is what you want. (laughs) Eight-panel fold-out? I'm trying to imagine, yeah, how does that even
0: work? You know what I visualize? Going to, like, a truck stop on the side of a road and buying a Rand McNally map in the 90s and folding (laughs) it out to, like, you know, here's a highlighter, kid. Draw us where we're going on the highway. (laughs) Folding out the giant map. That's kind of what it would look like, I feel like.
1: (laughs) Now, Valiant is releasing a series of trading cards based on their comics through the kings of the industry, Upper Deck which will feature the, quote, trademark upper deck anti-counterfeit hologram, which is the only reason I ever picked up a pack of baseball cards. Hey, it has holograms on every card. This little (laughs) tiny hologram on every card. But the gimmick of this is there are 10 unseen art cards, and first appearance cards but the unseen art is basically saying we never published this we're only putting it in the trading cards but strangely enough because they have the anti-counterfeit hologram they don't seem to be offering any actual full hologram cards in this set which you would expect but every card has a uv coating Mm, it's very Mm. shiny it's very smooth now i never heard of these back in the day but i kind of want them now because i don't remember seeing valiant cards anywhere or at least they weren't on my radar no i don't recall seeing any at all either yeah
2: when when i saw that there i was getting pretty excited you know what i mean but (laughs) please just imagine just i'm gonna talk to your wife and be like listen (laughs) take
0: away his ebay account take it away
1: I do it for you. I do it for you, Michael, so you don't have to. (laughs) Thank God somebody does. (laughs) Now, uh, there's a very cool ad for a giveaway contest tying into the X-Men 30th anniversary celebration where you can win Uncanny X-Men number one and Avengers number one or... Uh, you know, among other things here. The X-Men and Captain America the Avengers arcade cabinets in addition to an X-Men animation studio jacket. What was it about giveaways? They thought we wanted jackets. They're always giving you this jacket. It's embroidered. It's, you know, whatever. It's just like, (laughs) we don't want your jackets. But what's interesting is to participate in this, you have to find a scratcher card that was being released, of course, in all the X-Men comics, but also Marvel Age, Captain America, Thor, and Iron Man? I was just like, wow, they're just like going all out here and just saying, you know, enter this contest. By every issue we're releasing this month, essentially, And <laughs> you <laughs> might have the winning card. You could have probably gotten struck by lightning twice and not found that card. <laughs> <laughs> Now, not to be outdone, Valiant is running a contest of their own where if you get the right serial number in their May or June issues, you can win every Valiant comic ever with the exception of their licensed nintendo or wwf comics so that stuff's not involved but they're saying they're universe of heroes right like that and at this time we know how collectible valiant comics were so that was a very lucrative proposition but interestingly enough this shows you the tiers that they put their books on in terms of how they valued them so second prize is a complete run of magnus robot fighter third prize is a complete run of solar man of the atom Fourth prize is a complete run of Harbinger, and fifth prize is a complete run of Exo Manowar. Now that is just ridiculous. (laughs) Come on. No respect here. Good. It it should be the sixth. Uh, Michael, I'm going to shove a copy of X-Force number one in your mouth. You shut (laughs) your face.
0: (laughs) I don't make promises I can't keep. <laughs> oh, man.
2: Valiant's collectability was something that um, you talk about a company that went out of their way to make their books collectible. I mean, they when they did like some, take, take something similar to like a first appearance. I mean, everybody wanted a number one or everybody wanted that Chase book with that first appearance. Well, Valiant was smart enough back in the day where they would take a character and they would layer him in as a background character. So say, for example, Shadow Man. Shadow Man may appear in, like, a issue of Eternal Warrior, and he's in the background playing a saxophone. They did this over and over and over. And then months later, they go, well, the first appearance of Master Dark is in this this issue, and he's in the background, and you know what I mean? He's hidden. And they did this all the time. And they also had these coupons that you had to clip to get zero issues. They had all these weird, weird gimmicks that we don't really talk about, but their collectability was through the roof. So take Harbinger number one. So they had a coupon in the middle of that book. Uh, So that a lot of people would clip out so they could get this special edition of one of the Valiant comics. Now – Anyone who bought Harbinger number one, you know, from a secondhand shop, the first thing you'd have to do, you would always have to go in. You'd always have to check to see if that damn coupon was in the middle because, you know, it would be worthless without it. You know what I mean? So all these weird collectibilities and Valiant was all over it. But I think it got lost in the noise when it comes to, you know, the chromium covers and all the different things we went through. You know what I mean? Well, uh, they
1: did that, too. But, yeah, you're right. Like to actually drive up that value, they won. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Amazing how collectible those valiant books were for a time, or at least how much Wizard wanted us to believe they were. Definitely had a buzz around it.
0: So, Chris, I have a quick question for you. You had mentioned a very specific word, and I, as you have mentioned, you know, I've collected Funko Pops, and I had Chase Funko Pops. And people have asked me... What does chase mean? And I don't know how to answer
2: it. Could you explain what a chase is? So a chase is basically a rare collectible item that you, you know, you basically chase down. So it's hard to get, you know, you really have to basically chase it. <laughs> that, that's the whole idea behind it. So chase is just meaning that it's it's rare and, uh, you know, it, it's hard to find and you really have to dig deep to find that thing. So that's basically what chase means. Perfect. Thank you. Appreciate yeah, it. of no course.
1: Now, speaking of chase promotional items, if anybody has one of these, they are certainly hard to find because Wizard is actually promoting three licensed items with their own logo okay so the first is what they're calling quote a killer baseball hat then there is a comics binder featuring brute from the bart sears brutes and babes column and possibly the most collectible item of all the big cheese t-shirt inspired by garib Sheamus' nickname so honestly michael i think we need to reproduce this for our t public store so people (laughs) can wear the big cheese (laughs) t-shirt <laughs> it's time to bring it back.
0: I, I'm I'm all for it. I am game one hundred percent. Sign me up. I'll I'll buy the first one.
1: <laughs> but Michael, you know, we're talking about the price of those books, so why don't you take us into The Punisher's Price Guy
0: Wizard Market Watch reports that recent back issues from all publishers are dead in the water. Could this be due to the fact that there are so many number ones being released from brand new publishers? I would have to assume yes. Um, Taking the number one spot in the top ten list of June 1993 is Batman number 492, which is the beginning of the Nightfall saga oh yeah yeah for sure makes sense totally this book knocked magnus robot fighter number 12 out of the top spot after four months and detective comics number 659 is in the number two spot because nightfall was so hot the fact that magnus robot hunter number 12 was number one for four months means in my mind comics were pretty
2: bad (laughs) For a while. <laughs> pretty, pretty bad. Yeah, well, what happened with Magnus Robot Fighter number 12? It was exactly what I told you about. So they had a way of, you know, sticking in first appearances of characters. So Magnus number 12 is the first appearance of Turok. Oh. Which was which was about to blow up, you know what I mean? There, you know, we were going to see that N sixty four Turok, the dinosaur hunter game, oh. and all that stuff.
1: Hey. So you know,
2: okay, it became, right. it became a chase book really because nobody had a clue that, uh, and Turok, of course, was an old property that they just recently, you know, acquired yeah. the license for, and they popped him in Magnus, and boom, up she went. Ah, okay, well there you go. The more you know, folks.
0: Because Bane was the big bad in Nightfall, Vengeance of Bane number one is at number seven. And Sword of Azrael is number eight on the list. We, we read Sword of Azrael, right? Yeah, we did. We, we reviewed that. It was pretty it great. We did. I, did. I I enjoy that one a lot. Yeah, it was good. I too. So, for the Wizard anti-DC conspiracy theorists out there, here's the proof that Wizard was just following the trends, whatever sells gets the ink. And I could see that, because when Superman, you know, Death of Superman happened, that was the hot book or whatever. It wasn't the... But it wasn't a long time. But this Nightfall thing, I mean, it was it was taking the comics world by storm at that time. It was it was massive. I remember that vividly. In ninety three, Batman number four ninety two is listed at a value of three dollars and twenty five cents. So now we will see if the chapter one of Nightfall has retained its value as a firestorm, gone up in value as a fire star, or gone down down in value as a burnout so as of october 2020 an ungraded copy of batman 492 sells for 12 to 15 dollars so congratulations cape crusader you are a firestar. oh I mean, i'm glad it still has value i mean i have that book that's good i'm glad it's still that way
1: how much of that has to do with me? Oh.
0: <laughs> could you imagine if he, if like he sounded like that? Like if you could hear, I wouldn't know if I would have heard that voice back then. He, he just, <laughs> to me, it didn't sound like that.
1: What do you mean, Michael? This is the voice of evil.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is the voice of evil oh
1: boy and
0: that is punisher's price guide for june of 1993 so adam what do we have in the oh so popular jim and todd's hype machine
1: Well, you know, uh, unfortunately, Todd McFarlane's almost nowhere to be seen in this issue, except for the uh, you know top 10 of hottest artists. But the Wizard of Cards section reports that Jim Lee is drawing a Fanimation card of Michael Jordan as, quote, Agent 23 for Upper Deck's high series basketball foil cards, with Mark Silvestri. Mark Silvestri drawing the rest of these special Fanimation cards, including Larry Bird, as you guessed. It. Birdman. Not sure uh, how Michael Keaton feels about that or Harvey Birdman, attorney at law. Birdman!
0: I remember these basketball cards because my cousin was a huge basketball fan and he was going. he, He never read comics, but he was going nuts trying to find these particular cards i think he may have had a couple but i don't remember what he had at the time but it was it was i remember we'd go to this baseball card store and he would be like buying 10 packs to try to find these stupid things wow
1: wow crazy now also it's mentioned that the x-men series one insert cards which were jim lee autograph cards are now selling for 75 a piece on the collector's market so there's a chase card for evans wow. wow so in this issue jim receives seven mentions while todd receives four bringing our total jim lee 143 todd mcfarlane 127 wow. oh, the jim- todd
2: father is trailing
1: yeah jim is running away with this
2: wow <laughs> oh bud bud you gotta gotta get back on top there bud
1: <laughs> <laughs> your countryman there do you know anybody who talks like rob Liefeld's impersonation of todd McFarlane? Oh, that that is so good so
2: today i watched it was a stanley interview and basically he had todd McFarlane and rob leifeld on and they were drawing i think it was called comics greatest artist or greatest uh-huh. something or other and What's hilarious, it was before Image Comics launched, Todd McFarlane and Rob Liefeld came on, and Todd is basically shilling out Spawn. Spawn is, like, on full display in the background, and, I mean, he's got Stan Lee promoting it, so, you know, before their mass exodus, these guys, you know, had a had a detailed plan, so I think there was a little bit of uh, chicanery and con artistry with, like, roping Stan Lee into uh, doing these VHS videos, you know what I mean? This rogue pirate network.
1: Yeah, it is, yeah it's very interesting how they mapped all that out because there's even another of that series where they're creating Overkill. Overkill. Yeah,
2: overkill yeah and
1: then yeah. he ends up in Spawn Comics eventually. So somehow Todd got to run away with that design. Yeah.
2: But yeah, so in that video, just to wrap it all up, Todd is talking exactly like that. And I mean, he brings out his wife and, you know, he's like, Anna, uh, this is, uh this is Wanda. And, you know, she's stuck by me all the time while I'm drawing. And you're like, oh, it's <laughs> Rob Liefeld. This exact impression of that is dead on. <laughs> <laughs>
1: (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Well, Chris, we want to thank you so much for joining us for this episode. It was a ton of fun. Man, so much more we could have gotten into, but why don't you tell the folks where they can find you out there?
2: All right. Well, you can find me living and dying on the Twitter at Charlton underscore hero. Keep an eye on the uh, hashtag Superblog team up because myself and my tandem of bloggers are coming back in December for a yet to be announced Superblogging event coming up very, very soon. And as well, hopefully, very very soon you're going to see the debut or the second episode anyway of our brand new elf quest podcast called quester days with myself and mr christian so looking forward to all of that that's what i've got going on so that's charlton hero if you want to track me down i'm
1: chris bailey check me out all right michael well here we are it's robin's reading rainbow And yes, it's all come down to this. Will it be the death of us both? It is Deathmate.
0: So I have a lot of thoughts about this. First and foremost is the idea that when I heard about this story, which I had never heard of before this podcast, every time I hear the words Deathmate, it reminds me of an episode of Seinfeld, where they're trying to go to the movies to go see this movie called The Death Blow and I just keep hearing Deathblow in my head and, like, George Costanza saying that word whenever I think of the the words Deathmate. Totally unrelated, but it just keeps popping up in my head. It's like, that's how I keep associating this story with an episode of Seinfeld. Well,
1: and it's surprising, you know, because we brought that up when we were talking about Jim Lee's Deathblow comic book, and yet Deathblow is not a part of Deathmate. What were you doing, Jim Lee? You got all your other characters in here. Come on.
0: Yeah, uh, uh, there is a lot of characters in this thing.
1: A lot. Yeah, and so that's the thing, right? With this particular crossover event, you had to know your Valiant and you had to know your image. So, Michael, how are you feeling about being in the know? I feel more lost than
0: ever. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, so I, I have with me, I have the prologue, I have the goal, the yellow issue, which really should be called the gold issue because it's a gold trim on it as opposed to yellow. And then, then I have the black one here. And my first thoughts are this. For the prologue, the price tag on it is two ninety-five. Okay, still a little high for, for that time period, but the yellow and the black are four ninety five each. Who's paying five bucks a comic back in ninety three for essentially? b-level heroes is what i really want
1: to well now this was a big ticket event michael i mean this was the avengers Endgame of comics or so they purported right this is what they were telling everybody can you believe that the two biggest companies in the world in terms of popularity and actually at that moment as of sales right i mean they were top of the charts and here they were combining forces so yeah i mean 4.95 that's what a comic costs nowadays and yet if you look at what we got here they're slightly thicker cardstock covers the paper on the inside is glossy i mean that just wasn't the standard it was about to become the standard 93 94 for marvel books but i mean image changed the game we've always had that debate why was image such a big deal it wasn't just the art it was the full presentation of the book
0: so The prologue and black are the glossy paper, but the yellow is the regular, like, 90s-style paper, though.
1: Yeah, because, right, yellow and blue were produced by Valiant, and then black and Red were produced by Image, and then the prologues, I think they went the Image printing house, you know, and so now we're gonna use the glossy paper for that, so it gets people thinking this is a big deal. So, let's talk about that prologue then, because, you know, on the cover, we have Solar, Void, who is from the Wildcats, we have Ripclaw, Jeff the Geomancer from Valiant, we have Mexo we have Prophet, then we have Bloodshot's face, on the right side as well as I think his Bloodstone from Brigade or Bloodstrike I don't I think he's Bloodstrike Bloodstone there's so much blood involved so
0: much blood there's a lot of blood in this but Bloodshot though looks startlingly like Mr. Sinister in this cover. Uh, Like It's almost as if it's exactly Mr. Sinister. Well, the cover
1: is by Jim Lee, so he obviously had drawn Mr. Sinister at some point, so he's got that in his back pocket. But as far as the story for this Deathmate prologue, what is setting up the whole shebang here so bob leighton was the writer barry windsor smith was the penciler the only uh, involvement from image on this is jim lee and that i believe joe Chioto, who was the colorist also was working at image but what's happening here is you see solar man of the atom has his wife his lover here and she says that it's time to die basically you see that it's far 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 in the future this is 2062 now right and she explains that she has nobody left she's all alone in the world because she has been kept alive unnaturally way beyond her years and now she's alone and solar says but i'll be alone and then she says go find somebody you know i only hope she loves you as much as i goodbye my love and it causes some type of mental breakdown in solar so he splits into two so there's his regular version kind of disappears he's just like my head the the pain and then now he's got a cooler version of himself who wears a leather jacket and his hair is not covered in a cyclops style hoodie but he still has the visor he's got this white long hair semi-long at least you know so he's looking hip and then now he's sensing something so he travels through space-time and what does he find michael and so he meets Void,
0: and and they have this weird sort of back and forth where somehow they're sharing each other's thoughts, and they're both kind of floating in some sort of you know nether realm, you know between the state space time continuum if you will, if you will, and they kind of start making out for some unforeseen reason, and. They sort of fuse themselves together in a way. It's almost as if they're like creating their own sort of big bang and almost as if they're making a new universe. And I have to say, like, this first chapter, as they're calling it, was probably the best of the entire thing that I read, bar none. The art, the way it's drawn, is very much like Miracle Man. And I, I really dug it. I didn't understand how solar's wife died did he because she's kind of like having trouble breathing like she's sort of choking on something and i i didn't know if he was crushing her or like if he was absorbing her energy or something but that she's just sort of like gasping for air and then she just dies and then it's like this like ray of light that sort of blasts her and that's what has his mental breakdown
1: it's a situation where she obviously wants to be able to die she says but you continue to imbue me with your incredible energies you keep me young and alive it is unnatural you know so that's the thing she's just like i don't i I don't enjoy living anymore so yeah so he was just absorbing the energy back from her that he was giving to her and that's why she was passing away and then with void yeah like you said there's the meshing of the energies and so that final big giant splash page says if creation ends this moment at least we have known love our last thought together and then yeah then this new universe is being created so the second half of the prologue though this is the infamous pages right that bob layton said in his recollection he was waiting outside the door of a hotel room waiting for rob liefeld to deliver them and yet rob liefeld revealed right that he didn't want to give the pages to bob layton because he wanted his own team to ink everything and that's ultimately how it happened bob layton got to do like one or two pages but everything else in here is literally it's just these three panel pages that are you know very long panels and it's just a bunch of posing of valiant characters and image characters and it kind of goes between like on either side on one side it'll be the valiant character on the other side it'll be the image characters and then in the middle is the version where they're now combined into a different universe and so it's kind of teasing you for the future issues
0: question for you i couldn't remember who is the girl that's got the brown hair in the red and white uniform i know that she's she's part of hardcore right i forget what her name is i I believe her name is hot shot uh, right, that's what it is, because I keep seeing her pop up in a lot of places, and I actually do like that character, It's very, if I could remember what her name was in the thing. The problem with this book, and with all of these, is that they assume that you know who all these characters are, because they don't really tell you a lot of their names in times, and I'm like, I've seen these images before, but I don't know who the heck these people are at the time, and that's
1: really annoying. Yeah, like I said, I mean, this one was definitely for the fans, this was not going to be a book that made you an image or a Valiant fan, because you would maybe see some pretty pictures if that's what you were into. The Liefeld art on his side of the prologue is just as dynamic as ever, and then some strange anatomy here and there, as he always has done. I mean, the one that sticks out the most for me, and I know it's a group he's really proud of, but it's the Berserkers, and he was maybe going to give to Marvel at some point, but then never did, and save it him for himself. But one of them just looks like Kane, who became, like, the second Weapon X in the pages of x-force i'm just like wow he just totally saved that design you know he gave gave them Kane but then just kept using it when he went over and did his own books and of course prophet is this new character who yeah I, I don't even want to go into his backstory let's just say he's old and he's cryogenically frozen that he comes back in time and he's kind of like winter soldier actually before winter soldier was a thing but yeah, so that's the prologue. It sets it up. Like you say, it's, it's very engaging. It gets your mind going. You're like, well, what's going to happen next? And so. Then we come to, well, what's the proper reading order? We're just going to talk about it real quick in terms of what the release order was, because we're all about recreating, right, the time and the place. So we had in October, shipping simultaneously from Valiant was Deathmate Blue and Deathmate Yellow. And so I know you had Deathmate Yellow, Michael. So was there any section of this book that stood out to you?
0: Well, whenever Grifter pops up, I always like it. And and he pops up in this toward the back end of the story. And it was kind of funny just the way they did it. Like, he, he throws his jacket out and he's, like, going after some thug and the machine gun shoots at it. And then he just kind of whoops this guy's behind. That was pretty fun. He, he's one of my favorite ancillary characters that eventually ends up in DC. Beyond that, I was pretty lost because I didn't know a lot of these characters. The one part that I thought was really, really both interesting and grotesque is around the middle of the book. There's this giant guy with a belt buckle that has BB on it, and he's just literally ripping apart these cyborg characters, and then one of them sort of jumps inside of him and rips him apart in multiple ways. You see, like, fists coming back out of both ends like <laughs> his calves are exploding and it's just like tons and tons of blood just spewing out and that was really really both grotesque and interesting beyond that i was just like there's just so many characters with massive bullet holes or chunks of their body ripped out but yet they keep going and i'm like okay, it's a comic, I suspend my disbelief, but I was like, what is going on? Yeah, I
1: mean, that was that was the appeal of Image and Valiant, is, you know, they were definitely going to up the game in terms of violence, and that particular section you're talking about, this is what they were doing now with Deathmate, it was basically an amalgam, right? They were doing amalgam, but with the Image and Valiant characters, so in this case, it was the Hardcore and Wildcats being combined to become the Hardcat, <laughs> and later on, in another book, they have combined in a different way, and they're called the Wild Core. So you know, you, so you just get a few characters from each team. So in this case, you have the Hardcore team for the most part, but then you have from Wildcats. You have their cyborg leader. I don't even think he's a cyborg. I think he's mostly just all synthetic human. But yeah, so you have Spartan from Wildcats is now a member of the Hardcats, but everybody else is hardcore. And yeah, then you have that giant guy. He is from the Harbinger books, Michael, and he kills a lot of people that way. He just rips them apart. But yeah, otherwise, most important in all of the Yellow book is that you have Master Dark. And Master Dark is creeping around the background of all these he was like the big bad that was up and coming for valiant and so he is like stealing this necromantic energy from an old mystical tree and he's got plans you know so that comes into play later you're wrong the most important element of this
0: entire (laughs) issue by far hands down the most significant element of this story is an ad for shadow man versus arrowsmith
1: yes (laughs) yes (laughs) <laughs> Did you see that? Which we will be covering soon enough, oh, Michael. This God, is what we why? have to know. I've been waiting years to find out how that story played out. So for those of you who guys who want to know,
0: in Shadow Man 19, Get a Grip, Smith shows up. In some sort of Battle of the Bands type of a thing.
1: Shadow Man is a jazz musician. Aerosmith is rock and roll. Ooh, Yeah, I'm sure this is going to be uh, one for the ages. <laughs> the last thing I'll just mention about Death Beat Yellow is that it also features uh, zealot from Wildcats facing off against Ninjak, who is protecting Harada, who's the big bad in the Valiant universe as well
0: but they said about Ninjack he's he's coming soon like he hadn't fully maybe his yeah so his, he had, had not come out
1: dude he was in an issue of bloodshot and so that was the big debut. And then Joe Quesada, though, was doing the full Ninjak series. And when you look at any other drawing of ninjack, he looks so dull and boring and really just lame. And then the minute you see the cover, even, of ninjack, you're like, whoa! Like, it just it's better than everything Valiant was doing, art-wise. It just blows your mind. So, yeah, I was just like, why did they not just wait for Joe Quesada and then start, you know, putting ninja into the valiant universe but moving on to deathmate blue just real quick since i wasn't able to get a copy of that to you michael this one just has a throwdown i guess you would say between the eternal warrior oh you've been giving away a lot of eternal warrior gold editions on amazing art there michael yeah (laughs) and he's facing off against bloodstone from bloodstrike and
0: bloodstone from bloodstrike Oh my
1: goodness. I mean, he's got a little skull in the center of his face, so I'm surprised he's called Bloodstone and not just like Skullstone. But whatever. He loved that blood. Um, the one funny thing, though, is that in this that new universe now, the president in this universe is Ross Perot. Because that's a 90s joke that you just couldn't escape from. Who would be the president in an alternate reality? Oh, that little funny guy. Oh, can I finish? Can I finish? Can I finish? Can I finish? <laughs> and so Ross Perot, which he was the original interrupter of debates we just had some terrible terrible debates in our side of the world here but ross perot was the original one who did not want to stop talking on the mic but yeah so anyway this cyber force story is pretty lame um it's just a bunch of characters battling each other and then jeff the geomancer and he is the little kid who knows he can see through this new reality and realizes that something is wrong and so he is the one that is trying to warn all the characters and basically he manages to talk to Solar, Man of the Atom who Harada calls on a cordless phone. He has a a hotline to Solar and he comes through the phone and he believes Jeff and so now he's going to go through the realities and try to figure out how how all of this happened. What is the problem? Well, you know, and how do we determine uh, what the source is? But during that process, he meets up with Rob Liefeld's Superman clone Supreme, and he helps Supreme stop a, a fire in an oil refinery. Then Master Dark shows up, and they're joining forces with him. They don't trust him, but they say he's he's the only one who can help us. He's got a certain dark energy we may need. And so they go into the new reality scape to move on. Okay. So that's it for Valiant. And honestly, Deathmate Blue, in my opinion, mixed with the prologue, Those are the two essential books. So if you have those two, and then eventually the epilogue, you've really got most of the story. Because what we're going to get into now with Deathmate Black, Michael, Mm -hmm. what did you think about this story? So first of all, you know, there's a lot of people involved in this
0: book, especially in the pencils and inks. And I was trying to go through it to find which pages were which artists. And I'm like, I couldn't figure out which who, who was doing what. And I, and I kind of wished that they sort of like initialed the bottom corners so that we knew who did what pages, because that would have been kind of cool to know.
1: Now, I will tell you, they do that in Deathmate Red. So Rob Liefeld gives all his guys specific credit that way. But this one was done by Jim Lee in Homage Studios. And I guess he just didn't have all that together. But What were some of the names that you recognized on the art chores here?
0: I mean like obviously you have you know Jim Lee of course you have Will's Portacio you have uh, Mark Silvestri Greg Capullo pops up but I yeah. couldn't figure out where his pages were and I was it was very I was very interested to try to figure them out and I was bummed that it was kind of hard to tell at times There's
1: one guy on here who was going by a different name at the time who recently upset you with the variant Batman covers he was offering <laughs> Jeffrey Scott is J. Scott Campbell. Really? Yeah, so in the early days of his career, he actually changed his name a couple times, and at this time, he he was going by Jeffrey Scott. (laughs) (laughs) Of course he did.
0: So, okay, this issue, it's got the most going on. There is so much to read alone there's just so many thought bubbles so and, dense yeah and like so much dialogue and i'm just like i will try to read it as fast as i humanly possibly can i'm just like oh man this is a lot of information and it's just a lot going on so i i feel like the biggest thing about this issue in my opinion is as you go through the story when you get to the very very end you see that fairchild sort of changes her outfit
1: or like or she kind of evolves or something like that yes she actually starts with her narration my name is fairchild i live and will most likely die right here in st louis the capital of the midwest territory you know so it's like this is michael the very first gen 13 story oh okay this is their debut they had been teased in the pages of wizard as gen x but by the time this came out they had already been changed to gen 13 and so that is like the big thing throughout this whole issue right it's the gen 13 rebels fighting against mother may i and her team the troika they call them who are like this group that is holding everybody under their iron fist Again, like I said, there's a lot going on. Who were the characters that stood out to you that you actually could identify then? Well, y- your boy Exo Manowar pops up quite a
0: bit. His armor's a little bit different. He's got these kind of like backwards claws on them that uh-huh. I I hadn't seen before.
1: That's a Jim Lee flourish, I think. Or a Mark Silvestri, whoever made that update to the design. Yeah.
0: um,
1: Like I said, obviously
0: Fairchild, as I mentioned. the The one question that I kept having and i've seen this guy pop up before is the the purple guy that's basically like their version of the hulk Um, yes he he pops up and he starts out all purple then he has like his costume on he, I recognize, but asked me his name, I couldn't tell you. His
1: name is Maul, M-A-U-L. He's one of the few Wildcats action figures I had back in the day.
0: Again, that that Hot Shot character pops up. Um, there's this woman in purple that's basically like. An overpowered Psylocke, essentially. Right, and
1: you identified her recently in Amazing Art in this picture with Gambit. You called her Psylocke, but that she her name is Voodoo. And I guess you could say she's the Psylocke of Wildcats. <laughs> I, I would assume so, yeah. They're basically the same character, in, in my mind. I don't know, there's just a lot going on. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of intrigue, and it's basically they're trying to get to, you know, the famous arch that is in St. Louis has now become... This city where the elite and powerful live and they siphon energy off of these captured heroes. So you have Imp who's the little leader of Wildcats. You have Battalion. Then you have Union, who is a brand new character that was coming to image that was drawn by Mark Teixeira, and I believe conceived mostly by Jim Lee. But he is the one where they're like sapping most of his energy, and he's like the most powerful character that they need, you know, his energy to power the others. And Anyway, it's all convoluted, but the basic idea is the good guys have to go in and destroy, Destroy this siphoning mechanism so that they could release the energy, and that the good, bad guys won't have power anymore. And then the, they won't be able to dampen the supernatural powers of the Gen Thirteen generation. So
0: basically, it's a lead battle
1: angel. Is that what that story's about? Okay. So More or less, like there's a, there's a, there's a
0: giant sky city that's that's like kind of you know. Absorbing the energy of the earth and making the earth like, kind of desolate. And the idea is trying to get into that city and destroy it, essentially. That's uh, more or less how that goes. It's pretty funny. There's another character in here that kind of looks like Cleopatra meets uh, Mystique. I yeah. figure out who she is.
1: Well, and I didn't know her either. I don't know if she's brand new for this creation, or if she comes from some, you know, amalgamation of Valiant and uh, image characters, but in this story she is the big bad. She's Mother May and she's got some psionic power, and she can control people like, she's got Warblade from Wildcats. He is this mole in the rebel forces. You know, he shows up halfway through the book and they're like, well, he's back! And then turns out he was mind-controlled. But then he breaks the mind control and he you know helps to kill mother may i also though the one person we haven't mentioned yet is turok dinosaur hunter is now he's one of the bad guys he's been brainwashed he's part of the the evil troika but his new design is pretty cool he looks a lot like warpath you know from the uncanny Mm x-men yeah so he's a lot bulkier in this version he's got a mask on so I actually really like this design of anything they've redone for this series I'm like you know what Tarak looks pretty sweet here (laughs) but this is definitely a self-contained story so this is like a one and done it barely ties into anything other than some people say they could sense that this is not the reality that should be Ripclaw keeps saying that he has this vision he could see through the fabric of reality and all that kind of stuff so that's about as close as they get to tying into the major story now in deathmate red the infamous deathmate red which shipped so late rob liefeld originally all he wanted was a bloodshot and Youngblood team up and all of a sudden it, it ballooned it turned into this crazy crazy crossover that he was not interested in this is mainly a Youngblood story but he has Bloodshot on the cover Bloodshot is barely in this at all. Bloodshot is not the focus of this and so I really don't understand like Rob Liefeld had him taken away from him I guess to be a focal point of the story it's too bad really because he's in it but he's literally just kind of a minor character. The main character is Prophet who is also another character who can see beyond this reality and he understands what the problem is so he is trying to convince everyone everybody in this reality and al simmons aka spawn never became spawn so now he is just a soldier and he is part of this rebel force that is fighting the youngbloods okay the you know the youngblood here are the bad guys actually so al simmons is leading a team called night strike like k-n-i-g-h-t night strike Mm-hmm. supplies they didn't call a nightfall night strike you know or at least one of the chapters of mm-hmm. that
0: <laughs> so here's my question because obviously I don't know the whole story and I don't really care to be honest with you <laughs> but um how does it end how do they go back to normal does Solar and that other character separate the universes again like you because know, Solar like other other than the prologue you don't really see him at all like he, there's like one little splash where he's in for a half a second but yeah, that's about it
1: so, like I said, at the end of Deathmate Blue, you have Supreme Solar, Master Dark, and then uh Dr. Eclipse, who is a Solar villain. He's kind of like the anti-Solar. And this issue has the best art because... The first half is drawn by Mark Silvestri. The second half is drawn by Joe Casada. So, I mean, it is a beautiful, beautiful book. Unfortunately, by the time this came out, very few people cared about the conclusion. But ultimately, yeah, it's a lot of going through that nexus of reality. They run into that character, Union, who I told you about, who had just been released in Deathmate Black. And now he's telling them, you know, he said, I was compelled to be here to play a part in the cosmic drama. I'm aware of everything dark. So ultimately they show up at that moment so it replays That moment where Void and the cool Dr. Solar are meeting up. And just as they're about to embrace, Solar and Supreme and everybody break through. And they're like, no, don't touch her. And they're trying to convince the cool Dr. Solar that they are there to help. And he's about to do something terrible. But he doesn't care because he basically just wants to be with this woman. He is so... down with void at this moment the two solars fight cool solar he absorbs the original solar and then during the fight that continues master dark reveals that his whole plan he does want the universe to end because his power comes from death necromantic power is the energy the life energy that's released at the moment of death so the idea is he wants to be there he wants the universe to fail so that he can absorb all the energy and be the supreme being of the universe and in the process supreme is actually killed he gets a basically just like terminator 2 in the kitchen when uh, john connor's adoptive parents get the old knife finger through the eye Mm -hmm. Uh, that's what happens to supreme but that he's dead and then Master Dark resurrects him as a zombie that he he could control. But in the meantime, Solar is trying to blast everything, do everything he can, but it's too late. Void and cool Solar still kiss. So the only thing that can be done is that Solar gives a small piece of his energy to Union, who keeps him inside his cosmic body. It looks a lot like, you know, like those cosmic characters in Marvel, where they have like planets and stars inside of them, you know, that look. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so he's like, I'll you know I'll keep it, then I'll remember you. But you have to turn yourself into a black hole, Solar. So Solar turns himself into a black hole. He absorbs Master Dark and everything else that was going to end reality. Like it's really weird because basically he's absorbing the new universe that was going to be created into the black hole. You know, so it does happen technically. I guess it's just now a pocket universe somewhere, and then everything goes back to normal, and then wow. so it just ends with union. Talking to Void, and Void is saying now in the regular reality, I could sense one of my future selves dying, and then it goes to Valiant, and you see Jeff, the geomancer, who is this little kid, you know, who was again trying to warn people, and he says he could understand everything, he knows what happened, but nobody else will. But the last page, there's a shot of a you know a building that he's standing near, and what is the graffiti? Who watches The Watchmen? How do they even have the right to do that? Like... Exactly. I was like, huh? And now it's partially cut off. You can't see Watchmen. You can just see the top of all those letters. But uh, So, Michael, here is the question for you. How did you feel overall? We built it up that it was this huge flop, that it was terrible. Nobody liked it. But when you got into it, did it live up to that negative hype? Or could you give it a pass?
0: So... I, I think the prologue is a solid A minus, especially because the beginning was, I, I really liked. The yellow book was kind of a, a B. The black book was probably a B plus, mostly because of, I like you know, Gen 13 and I like that kind of stuff. Overall, it's probably a solid B, I think. It's something that I would have saw on the shelves and picked up, no, but um, we've read worse stuff than this, I think
1: yeah so you know if I'm giving my letter grades epilogue prologue that is an A I give Deathmate blue a B plus because it's essential to the story but the you know the action for most of it is just kind of generic and not that fun uh, I give yellow a C because uh, like there's the one moment with hardcore you know hard cats <laughs> but other than that I was just like eh, I, I could do without this Deathmate red yeah that's definitely I mean uh, again and it's got some nice coloring on it and the inking and all of that, but that's definitely a C too because just the story itself, I was just like, I don't care. Much too dense. But at least competent in a through has a through line to it is Deathmate Black. So that definitely gets a, a B. And yeah, other than that, the only thing I can say, Michael, is I also picked up the July preview of Deathmate. It was a little book that had Solar and Prophet teaming up at some point. And I was like, when did that happen? Like, I didn't see it in all the other books, like where they would have been together. So that was a really strange uh, combo to do. And it's a, just a tiny, tiny story. Like, it's only like six or seven pages long. So there's not much to say. They're just stopping an evil character from the Valiant universe who did some terrible things in their Unity crossover, and they're basically killing her before she can do some bad stuff in the new universe. So anyway, there you go, guys. We reviewed Deathmate, and we hope you enjoyed that look back. So that about does it. We thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wizards. We hope you had as much fun as we did. Of course, you'll want to visit us on social media, to keep the conversation going at Wizards Comics on Twitter at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram. Check out our YouTube channel. We're thinking up new content all the time and we have so many things to share with you on video where you can enjoy all the visuals of the comic medium. We want to thank the Retro Network for being our home base and invite you to check out their feed and theretronetwork.com where you can find all sorts of 80s and 90s nostalgia 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 and don't forget to check out our t public store hey you might see a big cheese t-shirt there pretty soon or at least some wizards logo merchandise and hey if you got a chance why not go review us on one of your favorite podcast platforms so other people can find the show and until next time keep your books bagged and boarded